Well, we are glad to be here with another episode of Consider This. My name is Justin Ebert, and I'm in the studio with Dr. Jeff White and Dr. Brian Elbing, two professors at Oklahoma State University and faithful members of Sunnybrook Christian Church. We're going to be talking about the integration of faith and science. Has science disproved faith, or is there another option? We look forward to talking more. All right, gentlemen. You are the GM of an NBA franchise, and you have the first pick of the draft. LeBron, MJ, or Kobe? Who do you take? MJ. Also MJ. Okay. If I, just not, not even hesitation. None. Only, only MJ. He, he wins. He yeah. wins. He'll hit the shot. Okay. Clutch under pressure. It's done. Drive. Kobe would be in a number two. LeBron three. Okay. Exactly. Wow. This is just like (laughs) uh, yesterday, isn't it, bro? Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) There have been some maybe not so strange coincidences going on about how these men think and function I told him our little Uh, strange story about uh, the Paul Davies book and how we both did the typing over lunch. So, gentlemen, give us a little bit of insight into who you are and what it is you do as we're here to talk about the interplay between science and faith. I guess I'll go first. Um, So I'm a professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at Oklahoma State University, and I'm a lifelong Christian. I've um, been at that intersection my whole life. Um, And... um, not sure. Do you want me to go into deeper de- detail? Give us a little bit of detail on what it is you like to do, kind of the specifics of okay. that general field you just told us about. Okay, yeah. So um, I guess maybe I ended up in mechanical engineering largely because I had no idea what I was going to do. I liked farming and, and church when I was a kid. Hmm. And uh, my father told me I wasn't going to be a farmer, and my <laughs> heavenly father told me I wasn't going to be a pastor. So um, I said, well, math and science, that sounds like engineering, according to the encyclopedia. So I, I signed up for that and um, picked mechanical because it's the most generic. Then while I was doing my degree, I, I was um, invite, uh, invited to work in a lab, and I realized research is, is what really excites me. So then I was like, oh, I guess i got to go to grad school. And um, I did an internship at NASA Langley and fell in love with acoustics. Decided that's, that's what I want to spend my life on. So I met up with a professor that does acoustics. He said, great, you're going to do fluid mechanics, because if you can do fluid mechanics, you can do acoustics. And um, that really set the course for um, my area of expertise, which is kind of split between acoustics and and, and um we call flow control, so I develop drag reduction technologies for ships and helicopters and stuff like that. Okay. I'm going to come back with a follow-up question after we hear from our other brother in the room. Yeah, so my name is Jeff White. I'm a professor of chemical engineering at OSU. Uh, Before that, I was a professor of chemistry at NC State. I tell you that because uh, full disclosure is what I'm all about. So while I have the great fortune to work in the chemical engineering department, uh, my degrees are in chemistry. And again, sort of like my brother across the table, I didn't start out from day one saying, oh, wow, I'm going to do research uh, in in the chemical sciences field. 
uh, sort of as a kid, I was, uh, I don't know, I describe myself best as kind of carrying a worn out library card and wearing worn out shoes because, you know, I was heartbroken in the ninth grade when I figured out that being an explorer wasn't a career track that <laughs> I was going to be able to follow, right? So I, you know, very much a sense of adventure and, and just wanting to go and do and, and learn new things. So that part's kind of always been about me, but uh, I started out as a forestry major. My father uh, has a master's degree in forestry, and I thought I would just follow his footsteps. There's a lot of power in this statement, you don't know what you don't know. And universities are great places to teach you what you don't know. And so in the middle of first semester organic chemistry, I figured, hey, this is what I'm going to do. So from that point forward, I knew that I would pursue research. And so now my research, a little more specifically, kind of involves um, using uh, different methods that, you know, Brian talks about fluid mechanics. I'm sort of an applied quantum mechanic in the sense that we use those principles to understand structure and properties in materials uh, so that they work better. And so I had the great fortune uh, of doing a postdoc at Bell Labs, uh, which was just this unbelievably amazing place and really taught me a lot about the value of really understanding the fundamentals, but not forgetting how those can be applied and be used. So, so that's sort of where I find myself today. I had a similar experience in organic chemistry. <laughs> it's a very different outcome. <laughs> I got to organic chemistry and realized this is not what I want to do. I want to do anything other than what I'm doing right now. Serves a great purpose. Yeah, it does. The one that I ended pursuing at that moment that I started hearing about it. It's an answer to a question. It is. It's an answer to a question um, that I stopped asking at that point. Um, okay, here's the follow-up question for that, um, for both of you. Give us an example of an ap application of your work that would impact the lives of the people listening to this. Um, yeah, so uh, my main research right now is listening to tornadoes, um, which being in Oklahoma is is relevant to, to many Oklahomans. Um, even though, um, so basically tornadoes can produce a sound that's at frequencies below what humans can hear. And um, I'm trying to identify the fluid mechanism that makes that sound so we can use it to improve warnings. It's not actually that big of a deal for Oklahomans. Radar does a phenomenal job. Um, but when you get to the southeast United States where most deaths from tornadoes occur, um, it's hilly terrain, and radar operates on line of sight. Hmm. So hills are a problem, and infrasound, which is sound below human hearing, is um, less, much less sensitive to terrain. Wow, that's awesome. Well, hard to compete with, you know, tornadoes in Oklahoma. <laughs> but uh, so one of the systems that we spend a lot of time studying, they're called catalysts. These catalysts are used to transform molecule A into molecule B. So... In Oklahoma, of course, we have a very strong connection to those molecules that are initially derived from uh, petroleum. And so uh, some of the work that we've done uh, has resulted in composition of matter patents for how certain catalysts can be designed, having a co-catalyst that makes them work better, uh, selectivity to make the things that you want to make, whether it's a fuel-grade molecule, whether it's a feedstock for a polymer. <clears throat> and increasingly now, uh, in the age of concern about sustainability, uh, reducing production of molecules you don't want, CO2 being, of course, a major example. So um, these active sites in catalysts are fairly 
poorly understood in terms of their structure and their sort of temporal evolution while they're working. So the, we spend some time trying to figure those things out. And so National Science Foundation supports that work as well as companies like Phillips 66 and, and other industrial sponsors. That's awesome. So you guys have both mentioned it a little bit, but would, would it be too far to say you really enjoy, maybe love the material world and studying it? Yes? Yes. yes. Okay. So when did that start and, and why did you decide, when and why did you decide to go into science, to, to, to study it, to research it, to teach it, and not just science in general, but your field in particular? Well, maybe I've made Brian go first every time, so I'll take my turn. Uh, I think for me, the research and the teaching part were separate. So uh, as an undergraduate, as I said, once I chose this chemistry tract and started really, particularly when I got into physical chemistry, which is the course that most people truly loathe at the undergraduate level, that's really where I started thinking, wow, I want to I continue to pursue this as a career. The teaching part came much later. So uh, after a postdoc at Bell Labs, I took my first position working for Exxon and in a research position. And it was very fun for the first two or three years, just uh, fantastic groups of people from all over the world, great melting pot scientifically. But, you know, when you work for someone else, you don't really have the ability to pursue what I would call long-term research. And so about midway through my six years working there, I decided that I would probably go into academics. And it was purely selfishly motivated, I must confess. It's not because I felt like I was going to go and teach students better than they had ever been taught. It's because I wanted to pursue research in a way that I thought was, was the right way to do it. Um, and so, so that's when I started in academics and then immediately just fell in love with that interaction with students, which I had really never had before. Mm. Um, my my story would be similar, um, <laughs> like like most things that we've uh, discussed. Um, I, I would say I've always enjoyed asking questions. Like I never liked it when there's answers in the back of the book, and that's why when I got in the lab for the first time, I pretty much immediately knew that yeah, research is what I want to do. Um, I tell my students often I'd be a horrible engineer mm -hmm. because I don't like doing the same thing twice, um, and so I really went down that path of just kind of leaning into it more and more. And um, like Jeff, I teaching wasn't on my radar. In fact, I always thought I'd be a horrible teacher. And um, so my, my goal was I was going to um, go to grad school, get into a national lab, do research. And um, towards the end of my PhD, um, teaching became more prevalent in, in, in because I would look at um, the, uh, you know, I was getting to us, there's a few people that, that were doing what I was doing and, and I would write these papers and I knew that the reviewers weren't catching the main point. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh man, like this path, like eventually I'm going to be that guy in this lab, um, where I'm the only person that really knows what's going on here and then I'll die. And then that'll be it. <laughs> and then like probably the <laughs> stupidest thing I ever did will be what survives. And it, it was kind of depressing when I thought about it. And I was like, I, I think I want to teach others hmm. to do what I'm doing. Um, and in fact, when I got the job at Oklahoma State, the concern was I never taught a class. Um, but I, was, I felt called to be a professor, and I was confident that that calling would, would work itself out hmm. and uh, got the opportunity. And 
Um, some students may disagree, but I've gotten pretty high remark marks for from students on <laughs> teaching for the most part. <laughs> I've known a couple of your students, and they do enjoy your class. Yeah, not all of them, but not all of them. That's right. <laughs> that means you're doing it right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So let's talk about the other side. Um, we're here at Sunnybrook Christian Church talking to you all, not just because of your love and understanding of the material world, but your even greater love for the one who made the material world um, and your understanding of the spiritual world. Ultimately, your, your love and discipleship of Je- with Jesus. So tell us a little bit of when you started following Jesus and why that's the most important thing in your life. I'll take it. Um, so uh, I kind of mentioned, I don't really know a time where Jesus wasn't a part of my life. Hmm. Um, you know, the church I went to was built on part of the land of, from our farm. And um, so that, that was definitely always a part of it. But I really look at um, when I was nine and my grandma died is where, where kind of all the pieces started to really come together for me because... You know, when somebody really close to you dies, you start asking questions, no matter what your age. And I was, um, you know, people would say things like, well, she's in a better place, and she's with Jesus. And I was like, well, then why are we alive? Hmm. And um, and things like, oh, like, this is really important. Like, this isn't like, oh, I can just kind of hope that this is true. Like, how do I know this is true? Hmm. And then I, I, I decided, I was like, okay, I'm going to pursue truth. And, like, if Christianity is true, it should only strengthen my faith. And if it's not, then there's no reason why I should be a Christian. And um, I really kind of commend myself to asking questions, hard questions, and and uh, going where the, the question leads me. And I'd say 30-plus years later, I have a stronger faith than, than as, a, as a nine-year-old. That's awesome. I, lo- I mean, side note, for those that ask questions, questions have questions and you feel like you don't have an outlet to ask them either if that's just in your head or you've had pushback from others like there actually is an avenue where you can ask hard questions and come out out on the other side with a stronger faith not like I'm god sure, in the <laughs> i'm sure jeff and myself and yourself can give you a long list of, of examples yeah, of, yeah. Of that we're gonna i think we'll come back to that at the end but that's yeah, good i think a whole segment on embracing hard questions is is something worthwhile. Uh, for me, uh, again, somewhat similar to Brian, it wasn't necessarily, um, well, it, it was sort of a family member. So I, I got to see my father come to faith uh, when I was seven. And uh, I, I, I can still remember life in our home before that. I'm not saying it was terrible. Uh, but after my father became a believer, uh, a lot through the efforts of a man named Tony Rengifo, who was from Lima, Peru, and somehow wound up in the little town that we lived in, in East Texas. And he became a friend to my father. And uh, my father was in graduate school at that time and, and truly uh, just transformed him. And so a couple of years later, again, Tony was teaching, uh, well, it, I, I was eight years old. He was doing sort of our summer children's church program. And that's when I was, the Holy Spirit convicted me and when I came to Christ as well. So I joke because, you know, Tony was responsible for, and again, you have to imagine, my dad is, is a big man, so I'm the, sh- I'm the smallest man in my family. And so Tony was probably five foot four, this little guy from Peru, and just, you know, truly brought my father to his knees through the word of Christ. 
And so Tony gave our family, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the greatest gift that we could imagine. But he also gave me a gift later to, to keep me on the straight and narrow. My first car was Tony's old car. Now, for the older members listening, you'll get this. It was a 1971 Ford Maverick. Now, this was the third ugliest vehicle ever made <laughs> behind the Gremlin and the Pacer. So imagine starting as a sophomore in high school, and this is your first car, and you're a guy in East Texas. Uh, so nonetheless, Tony, he helped me deal with humility early on. You were one of the few not driving a flatbed, probably. Guy, there's just so much you don't know about that car. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so, you know, one of the – a common thread that you'll hear, even if it's not well thought through, is just this idea that – science has has killed god or science disproves faith and makes makes religion unnecessary if not outright something to be avoided that's not a position that you've come to so how do you reconcile your understanding of faith and science how how do you bring together integrate these you know, you measure for a living the material world, and yet your life, your your heart, you know, you believe that there is a spiritual world as well. How, how do you reconcile these things? How do you integrate these things? I guess, um, well, you know, when when this question often comes up, I, I I lean towards the fact that a lot of a lot of it relies on kind of a misconception that science somehow isn't built on faith. Um, and, um, I think if we go into like some of the basics of science, it becomes really apparent. Um, I, I like to go in two directions, either f- work with their first step or their last step. And, uh, for this discussion, I'll go with the, with the last step. And so science as a whole, like what it, what it is, is you're, you're supposed to be observing the natural world and making observations. Um, so we say that's an empirical, um, uh, process where where you're you're observing it um and it's for this reason that um if you know i re- review journal articles quite regularly and if somebody said that there was a miracle that happened i would reject that paper instantly not because i don't re- believe in miracles but because it wouldn't be the natural process it's the the, thi- the way that it typically happens and that's why repeatability is is critical for science and what it's going to answer um and as it turns out, the natural behavior is so consistent and so predictable that we can write equations and come up with theories where how they interact. And, um, you know, that's really the beauty of science. And um, the approach has been so successful that Christians and non-Christians alike pretty much have begun to equate science with truth. But that's, that's not really its function. Um, and uh, actually a book that Jeff and I uh, both have read, um, and, and it comes to mind where it's called God and the New Physics, um, written by an atheist scientist, Paul Davies. And in the book, he lays out several examples of, in the past, how scientific observations have removed the need for religious beliefs. And then he projects into the future, saying, well, I can imagine that these religious beliefs will be um, resolved with future scientific advancements. But then he goes into the distant future, and you can imagine, like, well, what's the best science can do? And the best science can do is eventually give you some equations, some, some law that says this governs everything that happens in the universe. And 
At that point, he asked the question, well, who made the equation? And, you know, Christian, non-Christian has to ask, you have two choices at that point. Either that equation is your God or somebody made the equation. And, um, you know, as Christians, I'm I'm pretty sure I know who who made it. Hmm. Um, But the atheists, this is a big problem that they have to resolve. Um, You know, towards the end of the book, I wrote down a, a quote that he had. He said, if God is to be found, it is it must surely be through what the what we discover in the world, not what we fail to discover. And so, like the conclusion for this atheist scientist is exactly Romans one twenty, which mm-hmm. says, "For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what we what He has made, so that people are without excuse." Um, and so. You walk down this path, and you're left with this logical question. Um, and that's – everybody has to build it up on faith ultimately. And um, I would say we have a much smaller step to take than the atheist scientists. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, Paul Davies, he talks about, like, these meta-laws that govern all things and that you can either just kind of put your ultimate hope in these meta-laws or those meta-laws seemingly hold a lot of the characteristics that people who are theists – describe God with, yeah. right? And so kind of what you're, what you're saying is both positions ultimately end up in a faith claim, right? The, either yeah. the, the atheist position, the naturalistic position, or the theistic position. Yeah, and um, I mean, similarly, if you go with the first step, like observations, like you got to have some faith to believe that our perceptions mm. are also connected with absolute truth. Mm. Like that, that's, that's a grounding statement. Yeah, heard that a couple weeks ago from Dr. White, actually. (laughs) Well, there you go. Perfect segue. Uh, Yeah, and I think, again, I I fully admit I am biased by my background and interests, so a lot of the the examples that I like to tell people when they raise these concerns that somehow science has disproved faith is, well, if you really get down to the nuts and bolts of science and really what we consider to be some of the most elegant scientific accomplishments for which the scientific community is most proud— things like the dawn of the quantum age. And uh, you, you run into all of these words like uncertainty and, um, you know, duality. Um, and so, so, so if, you, if you take that, you know, to, uh, as, as Brian was saying, you know, we do measurements. And so, you know, one of the hallmarks of that class of, of scientific accomplishments is that the act of doing measurements directly influences the outcome. So, so again, there's this very famous thing that's called the uncertainty principle, and I don't want to take, uh, present that totally out of context because it, it doesn't necessarily always apply, but, but it simply says that uh, when you do experiments, observations of the natural world, and you try to draw conclusions for why elements of the natural world behave in the way that they do, uh, you draw those conclusions with full knowledge that the way you did the experiment might influence the outcome. So there's some very famous experiments. Most people probably have heard of Richard Feynman, uh, Nobel laureate, who, uh, you know, Caltech professor, kind of invented quantum electrodynamics. But he would say, you know, there's this very simple fundamental experiment that's called the two-slit experiment. And you can do this with particles. Okay, so imagine you take an electron and you generate one electron at a time and you let it go through space and go through these tiny slits. What you get on the other side of that on a detector screen looks like something that was a diffracted wave light that passes through a prism. 
And you can even do the experiment where only one electron at a time goes. So you're left with sort of this idea that, uh uh-oh, wait a minute, this thing that has a mass of volume and a high probability of being in a certain place at a specific time behaves like something that can diffract, right? So that's a very simple, and so Feynman said, if you claim to understand that experiment, you're a liar. (laughs) Um, So there there are really strange things in the world of science. Uh, This year's Nobel Laureate in Physics was related to quantum entanglement, you know, this, this idea that entities can interact with one another at distances much farther than what we know from classical mechanics, right? It's, it's bizarre. It's beautifully bizarre. We don't understand it. We can use it, right? We can do useful things with that information, even though we don't understand it. To the person who says that science has disproved God, I, I like to point them to some some facts about our universe. Uh, science tells us that there was a beginning of space and time. There's a reason, you know, a lot of scientists like to use the word space-time. They are, they are one. They were created at the same time. Uh, and they were ostensibly created from nothing. That sounds a lot like verses in Hebrews, right? Uh, verses in Genesis. Uh, so, so, there, so there are, you know, if you, if you look at the best science can tell us now, there are, there are just some amazing things about this world we live in. You hear the phrase elegant universe. You've heard the phrase intelligent design. Uh, science is completely consistent with something outside the scope of space and time, bringing space and time into existence. And again, like Brian was saying earlier, at the end of the day, you have to address the question of Why? So here's, here's the best non-theistic theory that we have at the moment, this so-called multiverse theory. Mm. The only way we get there is if time and space have been around for infinity. And so then all these extremely, infinitely small probabilities that you get when you multiply a lot of small probabilities together have a way of reaching some finite amount, and maybe we're all here. That only works if it's been happening for infinity. Well, science tells us that hasn't happened. So the Stephen Hawking's of the world try to get around that by saying, okay, we have an infinite number of universes. We're in one of these multiverses. So my point is, you know, as Brian very rightly pointed out, whether you're looking at things that originate from the very small end, where I tend to think about in my research, and going to the very large end, right, there are huge gaps there. Um, And the best that science has to offer us outside of God, our creator, are some things that have so many assumptions and are much more tenuous than, okay, uh, something outside of space and time Mm. generated this such that humans could live in this place and glorify the creator. Sure. And, you know, what you're not just saying is the God of the gaps theory, right? You know, that can be, you know, lobbied as an accusation against Christians. Well, you're just trying to fill all the questions we have with God. Actually, if we just go further into time, we'll, we'll find, we'll, we'll be able to discover that eventually. It may take a long time. We'll be able to discover that. That's not what you're saying. You're saying at this point, we have two, two options. And you either say there's this multiverse, which that doesn't seem to hold a lot of weight, or there is actually something, someone behind this, which seems to hold just as much, if not more weight, than the other option. Both options require you believing something that can't be measured, which is, what again, one of the accusations of science against Christi- Christians. It's like you can't, you can't measure that, so why would you believe that? 
I would actually say that we're like we're almost in the opposite direction of the God of the gaps because mm-hmm. um, you know when when I look at the consistency of what what we see, um, you know any of us that are parents trying to be consistent with our parents or parenting rules, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I, I I'm horrible with it. I make a rule and then like five minutes later, <laughs> I'm like, wish I hadn't said that. Um, but God's perfect, and so He is so consistent that you can predict that his behavior under this circumstance for this person or that person will be the same. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. What you would say, what I've heard out of your mouth, Dr. White, and I'm guessing you would agree with is that actually, as we continue to discover more, as we continue to understand our material universe more, it will only be able to agree with the idea of, of a God, because if he really made it and he's over it, it's not going to disagree with him. Right. Right, but but please know I'm not saying that through rigorous application of scientific principles, in the end, you know, here's the conclusion sure. that, that this is our God. I, I don't I don't personally think science can serve that function. Right. Um, and it's interesting, you know, people, uh, as as you've heard me speak about before, and others, um, you know, just all these finely tuned parameters that seem to exist. You know, there are many people that that look at those and will come to a completely different conclusion. Uh, people that are much smarter than me, um, but you know, again, science and faith are, you know, are are, are just not the same. Yeah. And uh, science cannot step into the role of answering the why. When you get down to the rock bottom, why is this the way it is? You have to, as as Brian pointed out earlier, earlier, decide. You know, what where does that come from? Mm. So. What are some specific examples, Doctor White? You gave a few. Um, you know, if you talk about the fine tuning, is one common phrase. the The intentionality with which the universe is organized, the seeming razor's edge. If you had too much of one thing, or if one of the equations, like you talked about, was was very just, we would have no stars, no planets, no life. You've you've talked a lot about that. So give a, a few examples for us as listeners and engaging this, examples of where your understanding of the natural world has either challenged your faith and you had to work through that, or that it actually did increase your faith. Um, yeah, uh, I, I would, I mean, I probably don't remember as well where it challenged my faith, honestly. Like, I'm, I guess I'm just too old at this point to, but I, I I've been asked the questions for a long time. <laughs> um, so, like, whenever, when, when I, um, I think about that question, I kind of lean towards the where it's grown my faith. Um, you know, I really think about, um, I wrote down Psalm 111, verse 2, Great are the works of the Lord. They, um, they are pondered by all that delight in him. And that, that's really where I feel um, that I've gotten out of science. Um, and, like, every time I learn something new and, and the way the universe works um, at no point do I go man that's simple it's always like oh well I grossly underestimated what was going on there hmm. and and every point gets more and more complex and give you some examples specific from my area of expertise fluid mechanics you know right now well it's been out for a while um, you know anybody that can solve uh, the governing equations for fluid mechanics gets a million dollars if you can show that you can you can mm-hmm. solve it, those are equations that were formed in the 1800s, and no one has claimed that prize. Wow. Um, you know, he he talked about um, Jeff talked about um, classical mechanics, so 
Fluid mechanics is the last classical mechanical problem that has no general solution. And, um, you know, Albert Einstein, I always tell my students, that he, <laughs> he, he, he originally set out to solve turbulence, and then he decided that it was impossible. So mm. then he came up with relativity. Well, he stopped at diffusion <laughs> in the middle. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, he has some nice, nice equations. Yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. We call it the Stokes-Einstein equation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so uh, you know the you know the the subject that stumps the greatest minds for centuries. Um, you know, this governs almost everything that we do. You know, your car, airplanes. Um, if you put cream in your coffee and stir it, like. Mm-hmm. It, it's so prevalent and so in our face, and and we don't have um, a really good understanding of it. Um, and it, you know, this is the world that the Lord has made, and um, you know, it's it's it, you know, every moment He is holding it together in that in that perfect um, union between every other thing. And you know, for example, a very specific example, um, we can't solve for the flow over an airplane wing. Impossible. I had a professor um, that he, he did the math. He's like, okay, if these are the governing equations, which there's some question whether or not we're right about that, but let's say that, that that governs it, and then you can do some math, and you can then take a supercomputer, best computer imaginable. And he's like, to solve for it without applying any assumptions or simplifications, it'll take 760 million years to do that computation with a supercomputer. <laughs> are so, you assuming Moore's Law continues over <laughs> No, <laughs> so you're saying well, we've already broken off Moore's law. So, that's true. Yeah. That's true. You're saying by iPhone 17 we'll have figured it out. Is yeah, what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, okay, that. iPhone 17 we'll be looking for that computation. So you know, in the realm of theology, we talk about God being transcendent, which means as you understand God more and more, you'll actually understand that you understand less and less. Yeah. And it's just this idea: if it truly is infinite and transcendent, you, you can never reach the end. And so. I mean, it just makes sense that if God is over the material world and he's, at some level, given us the ability to understand the material world and we still can't understand the material world, how much more him mm-hmm. can we... Anyway, going off a tangent of <laughs> yeah. why my frustration with this systematic theology. But anyway. Well, and I can, you know, just to, to build on Brian's, uh, but at the other length scale of the material world, I mean... We like to do experiments where we want to know the energy of atoms, and that controls how they do reactions. And so if we're going to do all this work to make these catalysts, you know, what are the energetics of all of these atoms as they are arranged? And, and our ability to calculate that is terrible. I mean, you, you basically do these very small cluster approximations on a few atoms because you just can't, you know, analytically solve the equations for the energies of these multi-body systems. And so it really is, so to your question, how has my work in science strengthened my faith? I mean, you just quickly get humbled. Mm. I mean, you just quickly say, wow, we, we don't understand much at all. And on the practical side, it's been somewhat helpful even allowing me to become uncomfortable with uncertainty. I think as Christians— we struggle with a lot with the yes and questions. Yes, we do. You know, the, oh, wow, is, it, um, is this uh, election or uh, intervention of the Holy Spirit in the Calvinist view, or is this my works and my faith? Yes, it is. But wait a minute, which one? No, it's both. Uh, this Trinity thing, is God the Father or is God the Holy Spirit? Yes. 
right? So, so these ideas in science that I've spent a lot of times thinking about, time thinking about superposition and coherence, how things that are presumably completely independent of one another somehow become this one thing. It, it you know, again, it's that's for me personally. I'm, I'm in no way saying that this is some kind of fundamental truth, but it's made me much more unco- made me much more comfortable with uncertainty, which I think as Christians our pride causes us to struggle with a lot. It, and I think a lot of people like us, we go into science because we want answers. Hmm. And what we found, and this is not just the Christian, everybody that goes into science comes away with like, oh, there's a lot that we, there's more that we don't know than what we know. Come with more questions, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 That's a great example about the, again, the connection between faith and science. So let's go back a little bit to the beginning. We talked about, you know, Brian's story came with, you know, a really hard moment and asking some really hard questions. And he came out the other side with an increased faith, a sure faith that has lasted his entire life. So for those that either are struggling um, because they, they don't see how science and faith can cohabitate within the mind of a person, what would you tell them? What resources would you give them? What encouragement would you just give them um, next steps for them? I, might, I know Brian has some things to say here, but I might offer just one suggestion. Uh, I hate to be the guy that says, hey, read this book. But uh, you know, J.P. Moreland is um, a Christian pastor, scientist, trained uh, as a scientist. He has a, he has a great, what I would call sort of a starter book, uh, Love Your God With All Your Mind. So it sort of talks about the relationship between theology and thinking. We, we tend, those who will be um, discouraged in their faith because of what they think science shows would, might be apt to characterize faith as being something that's irrational. And this book does a good job of sort of outlining that faith is not science, but neither is it irrational and neither does it violate sort of those fundamental tenets of reason. And so, so I would say, you know, look, dig, do, do some work. Don't be so dismissive based on just what you've heard in popular culture. Yeah, that's, that's definitely where the first thing I wrote down was, yeah, you got read books. Like there's a lot of great ones out there, and that's um, where I spend a lot of time. I'm not a reader, but I, if you want to answer some questions and settle some things, um, there's great books out there. Um, you know, I'd even read the books by, by the uh, atheists, scientists and you quickly realize how weak their position is i would say um but you know on the if you have a colleague or somebody um or even yourself right um i think i like to give this example um of i had the pleasure of walking through somebody from skeptical atheist to devout christian and um and, I, and I, th- I think it's really illustrative and, and encouraging. Um, when I was in the University of Michigan, I became friends with um, a grad student that was more senior than I. I was, I was a master's student. She was a PhD at, the, at that point, and a st- student. And, um, you know, our first interaction with, with faith, she, she was aware that I was a Christian. And she was a very proud atheist. And I had walked by her, and she said... Brian, how can you possibly call yourself a researcher, scientist, and believe in a God? And, you know, I, I kind of fired back. I said, I don't know how you can say you're an atheist <laughs> and, and, and believe in conservation of mass. <laughs> and and, uh, and that, that uh, you know, that particular conversation led eventually to the point of her saying, well, 
you know, if you're just saying that God is the basic equation or like governing laws, then yeah, I can accept that, but you can't personally know him. I said, I disagree with that and walked away. And it started years of conversations mm-hmm. where she would ask really hard questions and I didn't have answers to. And I, I think I was definitely a prideful um, young man at that point. And I, I, I look back and like the Holy Spirit clearly worked and gave me wisdom to say things like, give me a day, let, let me think about mm-hmm. that. And, you know, I... Things were said, and I think the Holy Spirit showed me answers that I would like. I'd say it to her, and I'd be like, "Man, that's brilliant! I don't, <laughs> I don't know where that came from." And um, you know, eventually, we read Chronicles of Narnia together, and I was explaining to her that you know this is really the Bible, like an allegory for the Bible. And then that made her like, "Well, I want to read the Bible, but where do you, where do you start?" And I said, "Read Matthew. Come back to me." Mm-hmm. And she came back, and she's like, "This is a history book." Mm-hmm. And like it's not a fairy tale, hmm. and I was like, yeah. She's like, there, you know, there's there's stuff that you can check and verify, hmm. and you know that led down a road to where she was still saying that she's not a Christian, but you know she was sure that Jesus was a real person. He died on the cross. He probably rose from the dead, and if he did that, he's wow. probably the son of God. Wow. Still not a Christian. Wow. And so, you know, she had settled a lot of intellectual questions, and she asked hard questions and honestly sought answers and I let her point that yeah she still had to take that step of faith to be like okay I'm a Christian and she took that step and it was a small step because she asked tough questions and pursued answers um yeah yeah and I think that I think that's a great example of how many people who are easily put off by saying oh science has already disproved that just just please do a little work just dig a little bit and I think you'll find that, you know, if you compare side by side the best the Bible has to offer to the best science has to offer, and again, I'm not saying that's necessarily a side by side comparison because the Bible is not a scientific document, even though it's historically accurate. Mm. But but you'll see that that you have to take big leaps of faith um, to discount where we are in the absence of you know of a creator. That's a decision everybody would ultimately have to make for themselves. But it's certainly not the case that science has already, oh, okay, yeah, box checked, Bible done. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's awesome. Well, um, as we come to the end of this conversation, one that I think will spring other conversations, um, anything you'd like to say to, to listeners either who are struggling themselves or maybe work with people who are struggling or, or just a word of encouragement that you'd like to give in general? Well, since you're looking at me, um, just again, to follow up with what I said, I think, um, A, don't be discouraged. Don't take lightly, um, you know, what you hear in popular culture or what, uh, sorry, don't take, you know, too seriously what you hear. I mean, you you have to be willing to say, wow, you know, um, in order for me to reach uh, an answer that that I know I can be proud of, right? I'm going to have to do a little work, and, and that can start with a conversation with someone that you respect or that you know has the other position, right? Um, I, I think as Christians, we should always welcome the opportunity. Hmm. And so don't, don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid to ask. Um, and I think the Lord will bless your efforts. That's great. Any last words? Uh, I would just... You know, exactly what Jeff is saying is, um, you know, when somebody criticizes your faith, 
or um, you know whatever it is. Don't view that as the first shot in a battle. Okay, that is the opening of the door. Hmm. That's awesome. I love that. Um, a lot of resources were mentioned during the podcast. Uh, and I know these brothers, Dr. Brian Elbing and Dr. Jeff White, you can find their emails on the OSU website, I believe, uh, probably. Yes. Um, would love to talk to you more about this. Shoot them an email if you live far away. Uh, if you live in around Stillwater, I'm sure they'd be willing to grab coffee with you sometime to dive way deeper than we're able to on a podcast like this. And once Dr. Elbing solves these equations and we have this million bucks, our <laughs> oh, library is going to get huge. It's going to be awesome. Uh, one resource. Don't hold your breath. Yeah. <laughs> How many million years? Seven hundred and sixty million years. So to the solve, uh, iPhone seventeen is what we're looking flow for. Flow over in one airplane wing. Okay. Okay. A short time in the 15 billion we have to work with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. Uh, Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. She has a great chapter in there about does science actually disprove faith. Goes a lot through the history of science and actually how a lot of scientists were actually Christians. And actually, as different discoveries were coming, it wasn't just the church that was pushing back. Sometimes it was naturalistics that were pushing back. So um, don't buy all the stuff that the world is selling you in regards to science's stance toward faith. Uh, We appreciate you all listening, and we look forward to further conversations.